2: In the last 50 years, the number of prisoners serving life sentences in the U.S. has surpassed the entire U.S. prison population in 1970, according to a recent study by the Sentencing Project. The highest numbers were in the West, with Nevada and Utah more than quadrupling their populations with life sentences since 1970. In the Deep South, those with life sentences almost doubled the 1970 prison population totals. According to the study, the myth that a person's crime predicts her or his risk of recommitting a crime is behind the numbers. The results indicate that even people serving life for murder refrain from criminal conduct by their late 30s and 40s, enough so that their risks to public safety don't provide grounds for a life sentence. The researchers found that between 2003 and 2016, the total U.S. prison population decreased, but life sentences increased by 30%. They also found that sentences of life without parole increased the most rapidly, 59%, as compared to life with parole, which increased almost 18%. The researchers found that neglecting to reassess tough-on-crime stances is driving the escalation of life sentences. Those stances include habitual offender laws, mandatory minimum sentences, doing away with parole, and the consignment of juveniles to adult prisons.
3: It's well known that solitary confinement is detrimental to a person's mental health but a new study published in the Lancet shows that there's a link between spending time in solitary and a significant increase in prisoners' death rates within five years of their release from prison. The study involved Danish prisoners whom the researchers divided into two groups, those who had spent at least 72 hours in solitary confinement during their prison stay and those who hadn't. The researchers then analyzed the mortality rates for both groups within five years after their release. The analysis documented a statistically significant correlation between solitary confinement and death rates after release, taking into account such other variables as age, sex, type of crime, and length of the sentence. The study found that whereas 2.8% of those who hadn't been in solitary had died within five years, 4.5% of those who had been in solitary died during the study period. Many of the deaths were from suicide, homicide, and overdoses. Nearly two-thirds of the prisoners who had been in solitary confinement had spent less than a week there, and so the researchers thought it was noteworthy that even the short stays raised the mortality rate. Cornell professor Christopher Wildman, one of the two authors of the study, thinks that short stays in solitary can be avoided. Long stays in solitary are frequent in many countries among the 10 million people incarcerated globally, and Wildman thinks that solitary confinement should be abandoned.
0: Prisoners at Pasquotank Correctional Institution in North Carolina have entered a hunger strike focused on limits and costs imposed on their communication with families and supporters through the JPay system. This hunger strike has already garnered outside solidarity in the form of a picket outside the prison. Additionally, some of the striking prisoners issued a solidarity statement making clear that they see their struggle as intertwined with those taking place outside the prison walls. Here's their statement. Quote, the prisoners at Pasquaton Correctional Institution are in solidarity with BLM and our hearts, prayers, and condolences go out to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Keith Scott's families to those protesters in Portland, and all of those who have fallen victim to police brutality. A brutality that takes many forms, from the unjustified beatings of American citizens and rubber bullets, to wrongful convictions, solitary confinement, censorship of correspondence, excessive sentencing, and to turning a blind eye to organized violence within our prisons." Up next, is an update on the evacuation of prisoners due to the Oregon wildfires that was produced by our friends at Perilous Chronicle.
1: On September 8th, the Oregon Department of Corrections announced the evacuation of nearly 3,000 prisoners from four facilities threatened by hazardous wildfire smoke conditions throughout the state. After the prisoners were returned to their home facilities, it now appears that those evacuations may have done little more than expose thousands of prisoners to possible COVID-19 infection. The reality of the threat is starting to settle in, as two new cases of COVID-19 have been confirmed at the Oregon State Correctional Institution, OSCI, in Salem, Oregon, one of the evacuated facilities. The facility has also been raised to a tier four designation, meaning the entire facility has been placed on a 14 day quarantine. The facility had previously been designated tier one. On Monday, OSCI began restricting prisoner movement throughout the facility, preventing prisoners from sharing common areas with other units, according to Josh Heiberger, superintendent of the prison. The quarantine is the result of two new positive tests of COVID-19. Prior to September 23rd and prior to the evacuations, OSCI boasted no positive prisoner infections. According to Jennifer Black, spokesperson for the Oregon Department of Corrections, the two sick prisoners were immediately transferred to Coffee Creek Correctional Facility, in accordance with Department of Corrections policy. To get more information about the situation, we spoke with Brian McDonald, a prisoner at OSCI who was evacuated to the Oregon State Penitentiary earlier this month before being returned to OSCI about a week later.
4: know from our original conversation, they took the entire prison of OSCI, OS, Oregon State Correctional Institution, over to Oregon State Penitentiary, where COVID-19 was already flourishing and everywhere. One of our big concerns was, why are they doing this? They only took us a couple miles down the road. The air quality was the same. There was no logistics that made sense why they did that. And OSP had almost 280 confirmed cases of COVID-19, and we had none. We were a prison without any. We were there for about a week. We were brought back to OSCI. Um, it's been almost two weeks now that we've been back. There is a lot of people, there have been over, since since we got back, a lot of people have been showing symptoms. Nasal, runny nose, scratchy throat, cough, that really doesn't produce anything. And some of us even have had, um, when I cough, it, My lungs feel heavy, you know. It feels like somebody's standing on my chest when I get a real good cough going. Um, I personally put in a request to medical. I felt it would be the responsible thing to do. I said, look, I have these symptoms. I noticed that they were going around, they go around and they say they're doing COVID check, but they don't actually ask anybody any symptoms or any questions. All they do is take a temperature. So in essence, all they're doing is a temperature check, not a COVID check. I put in a kite saying, I have these symptoms, um, can I please have a COVID test? I've been refused. They refused to give me a COVID test, which I don't, I don't understand. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, they did pull me into medical, and then what they did do is they took my temperature, and because I did not have a fever, they said I was fine. They are pretty much relying, even though the, the medical and scientific data shows that it's wrong, They're relying completely on if a person has a fever to whether they have COVID. And as of yesterday, they won't quite give us the details. Of course, they they declare it's a security concern, so they can't tell us stuff. But the entire prison is now on lockdown due to quarantine for COVID-19. COVID-19 is in the building. So that big deal that I was making before about how if we brought COVID-19 back to OSCI, and if somebody dies from it, I think it really should be investigated as murder, because we were taken to a spot that was a hotbed for COVID-19 for no reason. COVID-19 is now in our prison, and it is in our prison because of what the Oregon Department of Corrections did. I feel guilty. I feel like if I actually do have COVID-19, I've been spreading it. And I'm on the second tier, which is the second floor. If you go down to the floor below me, there's a lot of people in wheelchairs. There's a lot of elderly people. There's a lot of people. And my Selly, the person that I live with in a small, tiny cubicle, he is top of the list for medically vulnerable. He's had open heart surgery, he's had valves replaced, he has liver and kidney issues. If he gets COVID-19, it's bad. It's serious complications. Are As I'm sitting there in my cell coughing constantly for the last 10 days, I feel guilty. I feel like, I I, I hope I didn't get it at OSP and bring it back and then give it to him. And then hopefully he doesn't get any complications from it. But with these possibilities bringing up and getting more and more likely, and we're taking steps up the ladder, because now we are in a place where OSCI has COVID-19, and it wouldn't have if the Oregon Department of Corrections had not messed
0: up. This week, Kyteline sits down with Malik Washington, who was just released from prison. We've shared many of Washington's essays and audio dispatches from over the years as he exposed the ongoing injustices he and others faced behind the prison walls. We're excited to share the first part of our conversation with him.
5: Peace and blessings, sisters and brothers. My name is Keith Malik Washington. I'm currently the assistant editor of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. However, this is not where I have been. For the past 20 years, I have been incarcerated in various prisons in the state of Texas and in Louisiana. I just recently was released from U.S. Penitentiary Pollock in Louisiana on September 3rd. I flew from Alexandria, Louisiana to Dallas-Fort Worth area and then I caught a connector flight and flew in to San Francisco. I can tell you right now that this is a surreal experience. I don't even believe that I'm free. I have to like pinch myself, is this real? Am I really free? It's just like, it's an amazing feeling to be away from those slave camps and gulags. And oh, it's just so devastatingly oppressive, inhumane and abusive behind the walls. I just glad that I made it out alive. And I'm very thankful that Kite Line Radio is giving me the opportunity to share a little bit of of my story with you. I'm known as an activist, a journalist, an organizer, and networker, but this is not the person I was when I first came in as far as being incarcerated. I don't have a claim to fame as far as criminal activity is concerned, but What I've done, the history is bank robberies. That's basically all I have on my record is bank robberies. And I I can't say that it was necessarily necessarily politically driven, but towards the end it was. And I I don't want to go into detail about the criminal lifestyle. I just want to kind of give you a little bit perspective on how I was able to transform my gangster and criminal mentality into a revolutionary mentality. For the past about seven and a half years, I've been writing for the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. As you know, the San Francisco Bayview provides a platform for many prisoners across the United States, most of those who are political prisoners and some of them are politicized prisoners. And it's important that I tell you what the difference is between a politicized prisoner and a political prisoner. A A politicized prisoner is someone like me, someone like George Jackson, someone like Kevin Rashid Johnson, someone like Kwame Shakur. Individuals who perpetrated a crime, were convicted, came to prison, and then through education, transformative programs, or just a self-awareness or a self-discovery process, they were awakened to their, their worth as a human being and their ability to be able to actually contribute positively to the human race and to the community. And I cannot tell my story without mentioning my comrade and my close friend, Kevin Rashid Johnson, who is currently incarcerated in Indiana. And we'll be talking about Rashid a little bit more later, but right now I just wanna say that Rashid was able to contribute to my growth and development by many of the articles and many of the essays that he wrote about socialism, revolutionary socialism, about new African thought, about just political, various other political ideologies, and just a whole mostly political essays that touched upon every topic that affects oppressed human beings in the world today. I would say that Rashid is probably one of the most gifted theoretical essayists that are incarcerated in the United States right now. He has a very firm grasp of Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism ideology. He's very well read. And I've always been intelligent. So I'm a reader. You know, they say a lot of times if you want to hide something from a black man, you put it in a the book. They weren't talking about book comrade Malik. I'm not the guy. If you, I'm the guy that's very curious. I love to read. And when my comrades send me books, I devour them. And I read a lot of uh, Rashid's essays. And... I wasn't introduced to Rashid directly. I have a very interesting story how I even learned about Rashid, Kevin Rashid Johnson. And I keep talking about Rashid is because I don't think I would be here without Rashid. I was first introduced to Kevin Rashid Johnson in 2008. I was in in Michael's unit, which is in Tennessee Colony, Texas. I was working as a orderly or like a janitor in AdSeg where people are kept in solitary confinement. I was actually an orderly. I cleaned up, I mopped, I fed fed the men. And I was introduced to a politicized prisoner named Jeremy Ishmael Busby. And he introduced me to Kevin Rashid Johnson and the new African Black Panther Party. I fell in love with it. I mean, I said, I'm a firm believer in self-improvement of my people. I'm a black man in a world where black men's lives don't matter. So I was very drawn towards what Rashid had to say. Some people say he's militant. Some people say he's a radical. But one thing I can tell you, he's a person who loves his people and he's not a racist. He loves all oppressed people. That's one thing that really, really brought brought me in because what they were saying was, is that, This system of government that's currently in charge right now does not have a vested interest in all the people. There is just a privileged few that are benefiting right now. And Black, Latinx, LGBTQ, women of all races, it's just not working. But anyway, so I was introduced to Rashid Johnson's writings and I started reading. And then um, something remarkable happened five years later. In June of 2013, Kevin Rashid Johnson was transferred to the state of Texas through an interstate compact agreement. It was really, really crazy. He came to the same state that I was in. And at the time, by 2013, I had started to really become politicized. I started doing a lot of writing. I started doing a lot of organizing, mentoring. And then Rashid came. And as soon as he came, He was just subjected to some horrible and abusive and oppressive repression tactics by the state of Texas, almost to the point where they almost killed him. Anyway, while Rashid was here, the remarkable thing that happened is Rashid shared all his contacts with me, all his media contacts. He sent them to me and said, hey these are my media contacts, these are some of my comrades that support me and I'm, I'm bringing you in and I want th- them to contact you and they're gonna support you like they support me. So he just gave me the contacts. So rather than sitting on these contacts, I started writing them, introducing myself to these people, some amazing people, uh, Professor Victor Wallace, who, has, who was the managing editor of Socialism and Democracy Journal for a number of years. Now he's the, I believe he's the editor at large of Socialism and Democracy, a phenomenal journal, a journal that talks about the analytical side of socialism and the objective conditions on the ground as they evolve globally. Um, he introduced me to Michael Novick. Who is the editor of Turning the Tide Newsletter, which is an amazing newsletter that serves prisoners and the community of Los Angeles and basically all over the world. M- Michael does not just have, he doesn't have just a myopic view of the world. He has a very inclusive, um, radical perspective that says that it's an anti-racist and an anti-imperialist view. Um, he introduced me to Carol Seligman, who is one of the editors of Socialist Viewpoint magazine. He introduced me to Mary Ratcliffe, who is the editor of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. And Sister Mary and I formed a bond and I started writing for the Bayview in 2013. After, now after seven years of writing for the Bayview and for being subject, I was subjected myself during my time incarcerated in Texas. I spent 12 years in Texas. And if you just read my recent poem, 12 Years a Slave in Texas, that just gives you a glimpse of some of what I went through. I was constantly subjected to oppression, retaliation, repression, setups, attacks, poison food, I, I lived around rats, not, and I'm not talking about snitches and informants. I'm talking about roaches, rats, toxic water, lead, copper, you, you, arsenic, you name it. I mean, it was just the conditions in Texas are some of the worst conditions in the United States. I mean, Texas is right up there with Alabama and Florida in regards to the poor conditions for the human beings that are trapped in those cages. And we're talking about women and men. The women in Texas are horribly repressed. They barely have a voice and they just t- treated horribly. We certainly need to start looking at Texas and how they treat women in both their state and federal prisons. However, I became an advocate for prisoners all over the United States, not just Texas, but Texas was my specialty interest because that's where I was housed. I define myself as a champion for human rights and civil rights for all prisoners throughout the United States. It just recently, within the last year, I made parole from the state of Texas. I was not a disciplinary problem as far as in Texas. Um, The thing that I did that Texas didn't like is, is I articulated the nature of the wrongs in a way that could be digested by the mainstream media and just regular people on the street. And that was bad as far as the oppressors were concerned is because I was drawing a lot of free world heat on the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And by default, the Texas government attorney general, the lieutenant governor and the governor himself, they knew exactly who I was and they didn't like what I was doing. So I don't know why they gave me parole. I'm glad that they gave me an opportunity to be free. But I think part of their thinking was we need to get this guy the hell out of here because he is constantly shedding a strobe light on the injustice and abuses that continue to happen behind the wall. And we do not want the public to know what we're doing behind behind the walls in Texas. And this is not just Texas. We have to understand that the abuse and the mistreatment of prisoners is a pervasive and systemic problem that exists throughout the United States. The United States tries to say that it is a bastion of human rights. However, the United States of America currently, and for the last probably 50 years or maybe more, harbors and houses and cages political prisoners. They say they don't have them, but that is a lie. The United States has political prisoners. The United States punishes journalists for telling the truth. In some cases, the United States sets up covert, indirect campaigns to hurt people who speak truth to power. This is, this is a fact. And it's only those who engage in speaking truth to power that know that I'm telling the truth. I am so happy that KiteLine has the courage to even host me in a show where I can expound on some of the history and also some of my experiences that I had housed in both state and federal prisons. However, I would like to touch upon the situation of prisoners who speak truth to power and how it has become a favored tactic and habit of various Department of Corrections throughout the United States to use behavior modification and sensory deprivation tactics that are actually used in Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, and it seems like there seems to be an increase of these horrible torture tactics used on American citizens on U.S. soil by state Department of Corrections employees. And a case in point seems to be uh, the Indiana Department of Corrections. I'm troubled by this. And I think that we need a mainstream and maybe some alternative media journalists, maybe someone like Ella Fassler, maybe someone like Aviva Stahl, possibly even Kerry Blakinger of the Marshall Project. Perhaps they need to do a more thorough investigation about what is actually happening in the Indiana Department of Corrections and why are they utilizing these sensory deprivation behavior modification and torture tactics on prisoners who only crime seems to be is speaking truth to power and shedding light on civil rights and human rights abuses. And it's actually something that's very, very important right now and relevant because recently on august 25th 2020 my close comrade and friend rashid johnson was subjected to an attack by a prisoner armed with a weapon on his housing unit but there was some funny things that happened there was one officer named mr carter a correctional officer carter at pendleton on august 25th who allowed an armed prisoner who did not live on house, on rashid's housing unit and we're talking about kevin rashid johnson politicized prisoner scholar revolutionary artist, incredibly gifted artist, theoretician, human rights activist, servant of the people. So Rashid is on his housing unit, where he's supposed to be. Not out of place. He's where he's supposed to be, where he's living. Supposed to be safe, and the guards are supposed to be having certain measures in place to protect the security of staff and prisoners alike. So the officer Carter and another officer were working the housing wing that Rashid was on, and they allowed a prisoner armed with weapon onto the wing. This, this prisoner did not live on the housing wing. They let him in and he attacked Rashid with a weapon, trying and attempting to stab Rashid to death. It was a blessing that Rashid through the years has learned some defensive skills. He's not a violent man, but he's going to defend himself. And Rashid defended himself and tried to repel the attacker, which he did. He got stabbed in the hand. He suffered a wound in his hand, a defensive wound from the attacker. The attacker suffered some injuries also. And the problem is this. Rashid's placed in disciplinary segregation. His hypertension medication is taken away from him. His legal paperwork is taken away from him. His tablet, he has no contact with his family. And this is the telling thing. Rashid is a black man. I'm a black man. As black men, as black people, we seem to have a predisposition towards hypertension. It runs in a lot of our families. It's, you know, it's something that runs in the family. It's in, you know, it's passed down from generation to generation. Rashid has chronically high hypertension. He has high blood pressure. So these, he needs his medication, but this is what's really troubling. Many of you might know that there's a COVID-19 pandemic going through the United States right now. And two of the pre-existing conditions that make human beings really vulnerable to contracting this virus is asthma and high blood pressure, hypertension. So the question presents itself, why in the world would the Indiana Department of Corrections deprive any human being, forget about if it was Rashid, any human being of their hypertension medication in this time, right now, At the very least, you give this man his hypertension medicine, but they kept his medicine from him for a couple days, a few days. If it wasn't for the immediate response from the activist community demanding that the Indiana Department of Corrections provide Rashid with his medication, his legal property, access to his tablet so he could reach out to his family, man, I don't know what might happen. He might not be with us anymore. And I think we, it's, it's important for us to lift up the name of Shapavu Johnson. Shapavu, who happens to be Kevin Rashid Johnson's wife, she has done a phenomenal job amplifying her husband's voice and attempting to try to shed a discerning light on the pervasive and systemic abusive tactics of the Indiana Department of Corrections.
0: We'll hear more from Malik Washington next week. We'll have a link to his video about Kevin Rashid Johnson on our website. Also, a special thanks to Perilous Chronicle. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.